Who here was at our Remembrance Day ceremony downtown this past November? Okay, here's the thing. First of all, for those who didn't raise your hand, I'm not judging, but whatever. Maybe I'm judging a little bit, but it's all right. We have grace here. Here's the thing. Do you know that the armistice was not actually signed at 11 o'clock Pacific Standard Time? So we actually remember it like nine hours late, just in case you're wondering, okay, Paris is, or France is nine hours ahead of us, okay? So if we really want to do Remembrance Day at the right time, we should all be downtown at two o'clock in the morning, okay? Except that it's okay that we don't actually do it at the exact right time, right? Because we do it according to our, our time zone here. And that's okay. Because is it important that we do it at the exact right time? Or is it just important that we're taking time to remember that significant event? That we're taking the time. Remembrance Day is a solemn time of remembrance, and it's important for us as a nation to remember. It's actually one of my favorite secular holidays on our calendar. It's probably one of the most important ones because it's a time that we remember that we have freedom that was bought at a price that none of us individually could afford to pay. So what does that have to do with communion? Well, communion is a little bit like that. Communion is a time of remembrance where we remember a price that was paid for a freedom that we couldn't afford. So what is communion? Like, what actually is it? So communion, or you can call it the Lord's Supper, uh, is one of two sacraments that we observe in the Christian church, the other one being water baptism. Now, sacrament is kind of a churchy word, so what does it actually mean? Let's look at that really quickly. A sacrament... Uh, I'm giving you this definition by John Calvin. It's one of my favorite definitions of the word sacrament. So John Calvin said that a sacrament is an earthly sign associated with a promise from God. I love that definition of it. It's simple, it's easy to understand, and it's very accurate. Now, in, in some streams of Christian theology, they believe that a sacrament actually... Um, conveys or transfers spiritual power or grace through it, okay? We don't believe that, all right? Um, for example, with water baptism, and I'm not here to preach about water baptism. Who's ever get to, whoever gets to preach on that later, if I'm stepping on your point, I apologize. Okay, water baptism, we would say, is an outward expression of an inner change. Okay, have you guys ever heard that? All right? Water baptism is not a means of grace. What I mean by that is this. When you get dunked under the water, we don't believe that your heart changes at that moment. We believe that going under the water is a symbol of a heart change that's already taken place. Does that make sense? You guys still following me? All right. I'm not preaching about water baptism, so I'm going to stop right there. I mean, I'm not stopping talking. I'm just stopping talking about that. Everyone was like, yes, that was short. So before we get too deep into this concept of communion, we have to understand two very significant uh, things. Uh, 
So these two significant spiritual principles we have to understand are this. We have to understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and we have to understand what Passover is and why it was celebrated. So we're going to talk about those two principles just for a few minutes. All right. So first of all, who's asleep yet? I'm getting there. All right. So first of all, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Let's talk about that. Now, first of all, what the heck is a covenant? We, we use that. It's another one of those churchy words. You've probably heard it in a secular context if you've ever bought or sold land. But other than that, it's something we sort of talk about a lot in church. But what, what does it mean? So a covenant is simply a promise or an agreement between two parties that they stick to. All right? And often in church, we use this term old covenant and new covenant. So what are they? So the Old Covenant, quite simply, uh, is the way in the Old Testament that people approached God, okay? And it's this overarching term that we use that includes the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant, okay? So the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, and the covenant with David. They're all intertwined into what we just call the Old Covenant. Everybody still with me? All right. So I've heard it said before, and I don't actually agree with this, I'm going to tell you why, that you can replace the words Old and New Testament with Old and New Covenant, but it's not exactly accurate because, yes, the Old Testament is the entire story of the Old Covenant, but the Bible sort of deals with these two covenants in three sections. It deals with the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, and then we have the Gospels, which is a bit of a transition period where we see Old Covenant mixed in with New Covenant, and it's this, this juxtaposition between the two, and then from Acts forward is the New Covenant. All right? So think of it like this. If we think of covenant as a contract, we have the old contract, then we have the Gospels where Jesus is presenting the terms of the new contract, Okay? So he comes, and you see it all the time through Jesus' ministry where he, like, pushes religious norms, and he pushes boundaries of tradition, and he pushes boundaries of, of how and what is acceptable to do. For example, they were very strict that in the Old Covenant you couldn't work on the Sunday and so Jesus would do things like heal the sick on the Sunday, which they considered to be work. Or he would travel on the Sunday, which they would consider to be work. And he was pushing these boundaries. And the reason he was doing that is because he was showing us the terms of the new covenant. Does that make sense? And then we have the day of Pentecost where, again, if we go back to these contractual terms, that would be when the contract is signed. So that means from there forward, we're no longer under the old covenant or under the new covenant. If you really want a clear understanding of that, I encourage you to read the book of Hebrews. And the reason I say that is that the book of Hebrews is an extended, sorry, an extended explanation by the author of Hebrews to the church in Jerusalem about what the difference is between the Old and the New Covenant. Because the church in Jerusalem was really struggling with these paradigms. They were, they were struggling with things like, why can people be Christians if they're not circumcised? And why can people be Christians if they're not observing these feasts and these holidays? And so the writer of Hebrews wrote down this extended explanation that sort of laid that out. So I would encourage you to read that.
So what are the differences between the Old and the New Covenant? And I promise you, I am getting to communion, okay? So there's two major differences. There's lots of differences, but there's two major themes that change between the Old and the New Covenant. All right, the first one is how we approach our relationship with God. And the second one is how sin is dealt with in our lives. So how we approach God, what's different about that? Well, in the Old Testament, who could enter the Holy of Holies? Only the priests could enter it, right? So there was an intermediary between us and God, and that was the priest. And only he could enter the Holy of Holies. We, we couldn't approach the throne of God directly, all right? Now, and that's not saying there wasn't intimacy with God. I think if you look at the lives of, of lots of people in the, in the Old Testament, Moses, Abraham, Elijah, David, they were intimate with God. They had close relationship with God, but they could not approach the throne of God directly. There was a priest that had that intermediary role. But in the New Testament, that's changed. And so I want to look just briefly at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. And again, Hebrews is this chapter that, uh, or this book that really outlines the differences between the Old and the New Covenant. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, I'm reading, everything I'm reading this morning is out of the ESV, all right? And Hebrews 4, 16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, you can now approach the throne of grace directly. There's still an intermediary, by the way, but that intermediary is now the Holy Spirit, and he lives within us. And because of that, we could just approach the throne of grace directly. So how we approach God is radically different from the old covenant to the new covenant. Does that make sense? All right. The second major difference is how sin is dealt with in our lives. In the Old Covenant, so first of all, what does the Bible say the wages of sin is? Death. So death, in order to be dealt with in our lives, demands, or sorry, death. Sin, in order to be dealt with in our lives, demands death. It demands a price of that. And so in the Old Testament, that was all done through a very highly prescriptive and legalized system of sacrifices. And if you, if you really want to get into that, less interesting read than Hebrews, but equally informative, read the book of Leviticus. Okay? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a page turner. You guys are going to love it. You guys are going to read it. You're going to be like, man, Darcy, I'm so glad you recommended that to me. Best sleep I ever had. But it, it deals with all of that, and it, it shows you that if you did this and this on this day, you know, if you broke this law on Wednesday at noon, you had to sacrifice this animal in this location, and it, it gets very highly prescriptive. But in the New Covenant, sin still needs to be dealt with through sacrifice. But in the New Covenant, that sacrifice was the death of Jesus on the cross. And because of that, once again, how it's dealt with in our lives is different because now, once again, we approach the throne of God with grace. And that doesn't mean we get to keep on sinning, by the way. But what it means is that the sin that we do have, we're able to receive that forgiveness for, and we don't have to do this prescriptive series of sacrifices to do it because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Amen? All right. I promise you that has a lot to do with communion, and we're going to get there. Right now, you guys are just like, what are you talking about? I'm not reading the wrong sermon notes. I'm really not. 
Okay, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We're going to go to chapter 12. All right, so we're going to talk about the Passover now, okay? So we're going to start reading in verse 21. Once again, this is in the ESV. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the, with the blood that is in the basin. Now none of you shall go out the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the, on the lintel of the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and you will not allow, and sorry, and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised you, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared their houses. And the people bowed their heads in worship. All right. So, a little bit of a really, really quick history lesson. I love to go on these tangents. Okay, I could probably be up here for two hours, but I'm not going to. Okay, so at this point in in Israel's history, they are living as slaves in Egypt, okay? That goes back to Joseph, and that's a whole other story. But at this point, they're living as slaves in Egypt, and God is delivering them. And part of that deliverance was what we commonly refer to as the ten plagues, okay? And the last plague, God was striking dead the firstborn of every house in Egypt. And to spare the Israelites, once again, there was that blood sacrifice that was required. And they had to put the blood on the doorpost. And if you had the blood on the doorpost, according to this prescription that we just read, then the angel of death would pass over your house and you would be spared. Okay? Everybody know that story? All right. And so then what God said is he said, this is a significant event Because I'm giving you a freedom that, once again, you could not afford on your own. And I want you to remember this and remember this by having this Passover feast every single year. Okay? Who's still with me? All right. And so every year from that point forward, Israel celebrated the Passover. Once again, Passover is a feast of remembrance of a sacrifice which freed God's people from captivity. And communion, here's where we're going to start marrying these two concepts together, is also an act of remembrance of the ultimate sacrifice which freed us from deserved punishment. Interestingly enough, the last recorded observance of Passover in the Bible was also the first recorded observance of communion. Because it's where God transitioned going from old covenant and old covenant requirements to new covenant and new covenant approaches. Now, it does say in that text that we just read in verse... uh, It doesn't matter. But it does say in there that, that you shall do this forever. So now you're probably thinking, but it said forever and we don't do it. So I'm going to talk about that. Okay, I promise. We're going to look at that. So 
there are still some Christian churches that celebrate Passover, and that's okay. You can do that. You can celebrate any Old Testament feast you want to sacri- you, sacrifice. Wow. Don't sacrifice. We, we don't want to do that in church. You can celebrate any Old Testament feast you want, but what's important is that we understand it's not a requirement that we have under the new covenant, okay? Because what's different in the, in the new covenant? Two things. How we, approach, how we approach our relationship with God. Wow, I could go back. We can read it all again. And how sin is dealt with in our lives. It's different. And so we don't, we don't have the requirements, all right? So let's start to dig down a little bit into communion. Now, here's the other thing. Just before we get into communion, I know I was so close. We were about to get there. With Passover... Incidentally, much like Remembrance Day, Passover was not always necessarily at the exact proper time of day, at the exact way. But what was important even about Passover was not that they did it at the exact right moment. What was important is that they were remembering something that God did for them that was significant. Amen? And we're going to talk about this with communion. Something we're going to say a lot, and I'm I'm going to get you guys to repeat it after me right now, is when we're looking at communion, the most important thing we have to remember is this. Heart posture matters. Okay? Everybody say it with me. Heart posture matters. If you get nothing else out of what I say this morning, walk away with that understanding of communion. It's the most important aspect of communion in our church service. I have no idea where I am. I was about to, oh, right, thank you. She's a good wife. That was my wife, by the way, in case anybody thinks I'm being weird. (laughs) Just to be clear. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke. Now, Communion is talked about in the New Testament in four places. It's talked about in Luke chapter 22, which we're going to read right now. It's also found in Matthew chapter 26. It's found in Mark chapter 14. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 11. And we're going to talk about that one in a little bit as well. All right? So once again, remember I said this, that the the last recorded observance of Passover in the Bible... Not the last time Passover was observed, but the last recorded observance in the Bible of Passover was the first observance of communion, and we're going to read that right now. So, Luke chapter 22, verse 7, right above it, you should see a heading in your Bible that says the Passover with the disciples. Sometimes those headings, even though they weren't in the original scripture, they're important because they show us something, and and that's the case right here. Okay, so verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? Now let's stop right there for just a second. I really, really hope that Jesus had a previous conversation with whoever the master of this house is. Because can you imagine being the disciples if that hadn't happened? 
And Jesus is like, go into town. You're going to see someone carrying water. And just go to him and say, hey, where's your guest room? We want to have a whole bunch of guys over and celebrate Passover in your house. I, I just hope that there was a previous conversation. The Bible doesn't indicate there was. So I actually think it's fun to believe that it's every bit as weird as I think it is because, man, poor Peter and John. And he will show you, sorry, we're in verse 12, and he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, in your Bible, you should have another heading right above the next verse, which says, Institution of the Lord's Supper. So now we're going to see this transition start to take place, all right? And when the hour came, verse 14, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Okay, let's stop right there for a second. So remember in Exodus where it said, you will do this forever? Jesus says something here that's super significant, okay? So what it says is after they finished eating, Jesus reclined in his seat, okay? He was full. They just had a good feast, okay? He reclined in his seat. Oh, what verse was I in? Wow, I got to keep better track. And then in verse 16, he said, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So what does that verse mean? What Jesus is saying is he's saying, I am not going to observe Passover again. This is the last time I'm eating this feast until I see it fulfilled. In other words, what he's actually saying is, this is becoming a new covenant, and you do not have to observe this anymore because something significant is happening. Now, it's, it's really interesting for us with our 2020 vision of the, of, of the Bible where we can look back and say, yes, he's instituting the Passover. But for the disciples, this is a bewildering concept. Because suddenly, here's a paradigm that they were raised that they cannot miss. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You travel from wherever you are to go back to celebrate the Passover. It is important, okay? It is the most important thing. And here Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do this again. Now, what we see is because we know that this leads up to, after, after this Passover feast, it leads up to what we call the Last Supper. It leads up to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, which ultimately led into the, the um, uh, events in Acts chapter 1 and the day of Pentecost. So this right here is, if you want a definitive launching point for where the new covenant sort of is laid out now, this is it. This is where it starts. Right at this moment. So verse 17, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you now is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man, 
uh, goes as it, has been, as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could it be saying, who is going to do this? Now, never before in any previously recorded observance of Passover did they break bread and share it with each other, and did they take a cup and pass it around and share it with each other? Never. So this was kind of an interesting new thing that Jesus had just done with them. And in it, he had said to them, I'm going to be betrayed. I want to do this before I suffer. So here, take this bread. This is a symbol of my body, which is broken. And just to be clear, we're going to talk about another really churchy word in a little while called transubstantiation. Okay? Um, wow, I just derailed myself again. So... He took the bread and he passed it around. He took the cup and he passed it around. Never had that been done before. This was brand new to the disciples. But Jesus is saying, I want you to take this and I want you to do this in remembrance of me. So, in other words, he said, we're not doing Passover anymore. And now I want you to do this. We're stopping the old thing and we're starting the new thing. That's what Jesus said to them. Okay? Okay, I want to tell you guys a story. So my daughter, when she was three or four years old, I can't remember exactly how old, we were um, at our church. This was back in Calgary. And we're taking communion. And, and um, so the way we did communion in that church was um, we do it here sometimes where you come up to the front and you take your cup and you take your little cracker or piece of bread or whatever and you take it back to your seat so we had all gone back to our seats and the pastor is reading first corinthians 11 which we're going to read in a minute and while he's reading this my daughter in quite a loud voice she just wasn't aware of how loud she was being holds up her cup and she goes when do we cheers jesus now i initially put that story in here not to embarrass her but i initially put that story in here because like many of us we take communion and we don't always understand why we're doing what we're doing we're just going through this ritual but we don't always understand the significance of it but as i was preparing for this i realized there was actually something very profound about what she asked because when we take communion we are taking it to remember the death the burial and the resurrection of jesus we're taking it to remember the launching point of this new covenant and i think jesus deserves to be cheered for that don't you He was about to pay a price for our sins that he didn't deserve to pay that we couldn't. So when do we cheers Jesus? Well, here we do it the first Sunday of every month, but you can do it whenever you want. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So Jesus is instituting something brand new right now. I don't think the disciples, and I think this happened to them a lot, and I think it would happen to any of us if we were with Jesus. I don't think the disciples had any idea of the gravity of what was taking place while they were doing it. I don't think they understood the gravity of something that in 2024 we were still going to be doing because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. They probably didn't understand that this is brand new for them. All right, we're going to read one more passage. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, 
We're going to talk a little bit about the context of this uh, in, in just a few minutes, but it's really important whenever we are reading anything in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, it's important that we do it with a good understanding of the context of it. Okay, the church word we use for that is hermeneutics, and it's how we translate the scriptures, okay? And so in other words, we have to look at a couple of things. Whenever we're reading anything in the Bible, we have to look at who wrote it, why did they write it, who were they writing to, and what were they addressing when they wrote it? Okay, so those are questions we have to have in our mind whenever we're reading scripture, all right? So keep that in mind here. Who wrote this? Why did he write it? Who was he writing to, and what was he addressing, okay? So 1 Corinthians, who could tell me who wrote it? Paul. Who did he write it to? The church at Corinth. But what we're going to look at now is why did he write it, and what was he addressing, okay? So 1 Corinthians 11, let's go to chapter, let's go to verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do commend you because... When you came together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes in hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, so let's stop right there. Because what proceeds is dealing with that. So in the church in Corinth, Paul was addressing a very specific situation. And what was, what was happening is they were observing communion. And in the early church, they didn't have uh, little fancy trays with tiny little cups and broken up crackers or whatever the heck we have that you have to peel out of the top of that cup. I think it's food, but I'm not sure. They didn't have that. So communion for them was like this full meal. It, it was a big, big deal. But in Corinth, what was happening is people were coming, and they were just eating, but they weren't actually doing it in remembrance of anything. They were just eating until they were stuffed, and they were full. And then they were taking the wine, and they were drinking it in excess, and they were getting drunk. And so, so Paul is addressing these issues with the Corinthians church, okay? So we have to remember that. Okay, so verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then, then, sorry, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Uh, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we will so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, I had a couple more verses. We're not going to read them. So we're going to stop right there. So let's look at this. There's a lot to unpack in Corinthians here. Okay, first of all, 
once again, going back to that, that, those four questions, okay? So we know it was Paul. We know he was writing to Corinthians. Why did he write it and what was he addressing? He wrote it because communion is meant to be something very sacred. It's meant to be something very solemn to us because we are remembering something of extreme significance, and when I say that, I don't mean it's meant to be uh, done in a very prescribed manner. We have a lot of freedom about that. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But what I do mean is it doesn't matter how we take communion, and it doesn't matter where we take communion. What matters is our heart posture, okay? Say it with me again. Heart posture matters. I didn't hear any of you guys. Heart posture matters. And what Paul was addressing with the Corinthians here is their heart posture. Because for them, it had just become something they did to be social, to eat, to get drunk. And Paul's addressing their heart posture, saying, don't you understand, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took this and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood that sealed the covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Check your heart posture. And so sometimes this can be a very, very scary verse for people when they, when they see this uh, in verse 27 when it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is scary. I mean, sometimes this can lead people to say, I'm not going to take communion because I had a fight with my wife on the way to church this morning. And now I'm really scared. And it's not what it's saying. What it's saying is if you had a fight with your wife on the way to church this morning, make it right. Tell her she was right because she probably was. And for the record, if you're really worried about it, just do what we did this morning and take separate cars. For the record, if you have, if you have a fight with your wife on a Sunday that's not communion Sunday, you should still make sure your heart's right, okay? But that's not actually what it's saying, okay? What Paul is saying here is when you're going into communion, Check your heart posture. Are you doing this with unresolved sin in your life? Are you doing this with things that you know you need to deal with? Because if you're not dealing with those things and you're doing this, then you can't really appreciate or remember the magnitude of what Jesus did because Jesus died so that we can have sin dealt with in our lives. And if now we're taking communion but we're not willing to deal with the sin that he paid a price for us to deal with, we're not doing it in a worthy manner. Does that make sense? But for the record, I still think your wife was probably right. <laughs> All right. So what I'm trying to say with that is when we read that in Corinthians, we don't have to be scared to take communion. In fact, communion is not something meant to make us scared or confine us. It's meant to show us and help us remember a freedom and a grace that we have. Sorry, I just need a quick drink of water. 
It's something that should make us feel released as Christians. Amen? It's something that should make us remember that the price for the sin that we need to deal with and we should deal with has already been paid. And it frees us to deal with the things we need to deal with. But make sure we're dealing with them. What Paul was addressing was those very specific things where people had lost track of that in communion. And so it's important we understand what communion is. It's important we understand the magnitude of what communion is. Because it matters to us. So who can take communion? Who can take the Lord's Supper? Well, what we just read in 1 Corinthians would suggest to us that this sacrament is for those who are walking in fellowship with the Lord. So we shouldn't partake in it if we're not born again. And we shouldn't partake in it if we have things that we need to be dealing with. Again, I'm not talking about a little spat with your wife on the way to church. But if we have serious issues of sin in our lives that we are not willing to resolve, we probably shouldn't take communion. Okay. You see, the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus is the thing that launches this new covenant. And that's sealed, or that contract is signed on the day of Pentecost. So that the price for us to deal with sin in a new covenant manner has been paid. And so when Paul says, examine your heart, he's saying, is there things that this new covenant has given you grace to deal with that you're not willing to deal with? But aside from those two things, if you're not born again and you've dealt with those sin issues, anybody else can take communion. It doesn't matter. Another question, oh, one other thing I just want to touch on on that. I heard somebody say once, and I love this definition, that sin is anything in our life that interferes with our relationship with God. And so part of that examination, we have to look at our lives and say, is there things in my life that are interfering, that are in between, that are blocking that relationship with Christ. All right. Next question that I would just want to look at, and that's this. Can we only take communion at church? There, and there's a lot of schools on, of thought on this. There are some people that think you can only take it at church. There's people that think you, you don't have to take it at church. What's the most important thing that we have to remember about communion? Heart posture matters. It's our heart posture. If you want to have communion at home with a group of friends, have communion at home with a group of friends. It's great. It doesn't matter the physical location we do it. What matters is are we remembering and are we observing what we need to remember and observe when we're doing it. How often should we take communion? In our church, we take it once a month, first Sunday of every month. 
What happens if something comes up and we change it to the second Sunday of the month? Or what if something happens and we skip it one month? The Bible gives no prescription on how often we should take it. We can take it monthly. We can take it weekly. There's churches that do it every single week. We can do it once a year, twice a year. It doesn't matter. The frequency doesn't matter. What matters is what? Heart posture. So this brings us to a really fun topic. Do the emblems matter? By that, I mean, does it matter what we take communion with? Once again, I really hope not because I'm still not convinced that that little wafer thing under the first layer of plastic, I don't think that's food. Like, I think I got an Amazon package that used that as, like, packing stuff once. If it was food, we would have had somebody come to us by now and saying they're allergic to it. So, I'm just saying. Are the emblems important? Does it matter what we take communion with? Does it have to be unleavened bread, or can it be leavened bread? Does it have to be uh, full grain bread, or can it be gluten-free? Does it matter if we use wine or grape juice? I just want to tell you right now, you can take communion with a donut and orange juice if you want. I'd encourage you to try it sometime. It should be fun. Okay, I have, a, I have a really big word. The word is transubstantiation. Who's ever heard of that word? Raise your hand. Okay, transubstantiation in Christianity is basically this. It's a really, really big word, and it's a really simple concept. What it means is the change by which the substance, though not the appearance, of bread and wine in the Eucharist becomes Christ's real presence. That is his body and blood. So in other words, what it's saying is with transubstantiation, the emblems matter because what we believe is that when we take those emblems, even though the appearance doesn't change, it actually becomes the, the, the body and the blood of Jesus. Okay? That's what that means. Everybody understand that? We don't believe that. Okay? We don't believe that. You're welcome. Because we don't, this goes back to what I said at the beginning uh, about sacraments. We don't believe that grace or spiritual power is transferred through the sacraments. We don't believe that. We believe that they are very significant, important, symbolic gestures of something else that has happened. All right? Who here remembers church during COVID when whoever was preaching was banished to that corner and we were all watching on our couches, okay, and nobody could come? Everybody remember that? Okay, so during COVID, my family... We made this big thing out of Sunday morning. So we would do this gigantic breakfast, and we would be pigging out on this gigantic breakfast every Sunday morning during church while we were watching it on our TV. So what that means is communion would come and would still be eating breakfast. And James would say, take whatever you have in your fridge and have communion. And so we would do things like have communion with pancakes and coffee or orange juice. I think, and I could be wrong, I think I actually took communion with bacon once. It was the best. 
okay? What all that to say, the emblems don't matter. What we take communion with doesn't matter. If you came to church one Sunday morning and we had Timbits and coffee to take communion with, do you know that we could still do it? I just lost enough weight to get into this vest, so I don't think we should do it. But you could, okay? You could. What matters in communion? Heart posture. It doesn't matter what we use to take it. And I know that there's probably somebody here where I'm actually really challenging a paradigm that you've believed for a really long time. But, you know, sometimes it's okay for those things to be challenged in our hearts. It's okay that that challenges you. Maybe there's some people here that are like, that doesn't challenge me at all. Bring on the bacon. That's great. Wonderful. What I want to say to you is this. I'm just going to invite the worship team to come back up. When the liturgy of communion becomes more important than the significance of communion, we're doing it wrong. Okay? When the manner and the timing and the frequency and what we use, when all of that stuff becomes more important than why we're doing it, we're doing it wrong. Because none of that stuff matters. Do you know why the first communion was taken with bread and wine? Because that's what they had. If they had a Wendy's drive through we might be taking communion with Junior Bacon Cheeseburgers. It was, we, Jesus used bread and wine because that's what they had. If anybody wants to go get me a Junior Bacon Cheeseburger, I support that. When it matters more where we are or what we're doing or how we observe it, we've missed the point. Remembering the sacrifice and allowing it to change our hearts, that's what matters. When the gravity of the fact that Jesus, even though he didn't have to, even though he had no sin in his life, allowed himself to be mistreated and tortured and falsely accused and hung on a cross so that we didn't have to do that, that's what we need to remember. There was a price paid so we could deal with the sin in our lives. So let's deal with the sin in our lives so we can observe the remembrance of that sacrifice. And so the only other thing I want to say, and then I'm going to close in prayer, is the only thing that I would say about why frequency of taking communion matters, and it's good we do it every month, is because when we don't do it regularly, it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to get caught up in our own lives and not take a few minutes and remember that there's a freedom we have that we couldn't afford. Does it matter, going back to Remembrance Day, that we do it every year? Not really, but it's important that we do it every year because it helps us to remember the freedoms we enjoy in our society cost, had a price. And so we need to do communion often, and we need to do it regularly because it gives us that time to pause and be like, that's right, I can be here because Christ paid a price for me. And let's remember that price. 
But let's not get so caught up in the when and the how and the what we're taking. It doesn't matter. Let's just check our hearts. Say it with me one more time before we close. Heart posture matters. It's the most important thing about communion. Where is our heart at and what does our heart look like? So, Father, we just want to thank you for today. We just want to thank you that you have paid a price so that we can deal with the sin in our lives. And we just pray that we would remember that frequently and we would examine ourselves frequently to see what are the things that we need to look at, what are the things that are interfering or blocking our relationship with you so we can get rid of them. Because we don't want those things in our lives. We want to solemnly remember what you have done for us. And we want to, with thanksgiving, let that change our hearts. And so, Father, I pray that that would be the posture that we take. In the name of Jesus, amen.